So often when we think about um, the subjects of wisdom and foolishness, we don't really, like those words sound like old words, like we associate them with maybe old religion or folk tales or fairy tales or you know, the wise old man came to the young boy and gave him some proverb. Um, we don't really see how it's relevant to us today. It seems like something that's sort of distant, it's far off. We don't usually talk in terms of wisdom, like I wanna be wise today, or that would be a foolish decision for me to make. We don't really often talk like that, but it is something that's very relevant today, and it's not just relevant, but it's something that uh, the Bible says actually leads one to life or leads one to death. So it has really an eternal weight and relevance. And so we see that eternal weight and relevance as we look at Proverbs chapter 2. <clears throat> so uh, Pastor Ron and Will have been teaching through Proverbs, uh, an intro by Pastor Ron and then Proverbs chapter 1. And I'll just be covering chapter 2 for us today. <clears throat> so Proverbs 2, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Proverbs 2. Or if you have your phones. I was going to say if you have your iPhone, but then I'd be partial. So if you have your phones, you can open up to Proverbs 2. <laughs> we can talk about that later. Um, Proverbs chapter 2. So Proverbs 2 is really one long discourse of a father to his son. With his son sort of waiting with anticipation for the words his father would say, it's as if the father takes a deep breath and then carefully and intentionally speaks to his son the words of Proverbs chapter 2. You can imagine a a man sitting down in the living room with his son and they're having this really intentional and intense conversation. And this father, is he wants to address his son and give him <clears throat> what is eternal wisdom. And he sort of sits down and he breathes and he says, son, listen to my words. And this chapter urges the son to actively pursue wisdom, which are found in the father's words. And why is the son urged to pursue wisdom? So that he may discover the fear of God with all its practical and ethical implications. So the idea here is not sort of a casual walk uh, with this expectation that you'll just stumble into being wise. So we can't expect to, and we shouldn't expect to just sort of sit on the couch or just casually you know, walk through life and expect that we'll become wise by osmosis. We walk by a wise person and we just become wise as that person is wise. Um, Proverbs says that it's something that ought to be pursued, intentionally and purposefully uh, pursued. We should seek after and search for wisdom. <clears throat> and this wisdom will save the son from all kinds of trouble in life from a perverse speech to evil behavior to the adulterous woman. And this chapter ends with the declaration that those who are upright, presumably because they've heeded the Father's words and found the fear of God, will be allowed to stay in the land, but those who do not, the wicked and faithless, will be removed from the land. And I'll talk about that towards the end, this uh, idea of land <clears throat> and staying in or being removed from the land. Now, as we consider a, um, a layout for this chapter, we realize that scripture wasn't initially broken up into verses. It didn't have verse breaks or section breaks, but to help us sort of walk through this chapter, I have broken it up and it's on your handout. 
So first, we'll talk about the value of wisdom, um, verses 1 to 5, the fruit of wisdom, the protection of wisdom, and the two paths. The path of uprightness versus the wicked path, which are seen in the last uh, few verses there. So first, let's read Proverbs chapter 2 together, and then we'll go back and walk through these sections. So let's read Proverbs chapter 2 together. Do I have a volunteer, someone who would dare to do it? Go ahead, Mac. Thank you. Yes, please. And a little higher, if you don't mind. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. Guarding the paths of justice, watching over the way of the saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice. Uh, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you, understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech, who forsake the paths of unrighteousness, of uprightness. To walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in <clears throat> and delight in perverseness of evil. Men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down into death, and her path to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. So you will walk in the way of the good, and keep the paths of the righteous. For the upright will inhabit the land, and those with integrity will remain. But the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be rooted out. Thank you. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> first, we'll go back to the first five verses and talk about the value of wisdom. But you can sort of sense the, uh, the tone of this conversation that the father has with his son, but we'll, we'll talk about it. <clears throat> So at the beginning, just a a few minutes ago, at the beginning of the class, I mentioned that Proverbs 2 is really one long discourse of the father with his son. The words, my son, in verse 1 of chapter 2, mark a new beginning, while at the same time, it continues the my son pattern that you see in chapter 1, verses 8, 10, and 15. 
in this chapter, in, in chapter one of Proverbs, wisdom was speaking in the first person. And you heard that over and over as Pastor Ron and Will talk. Wisdom is speaking. And in other words, wisdom is addressing uh, the simple, the mocker, and the fool. Wisdom said, I called and you refused to answer. And you hated my reproof or my correction. So it's talking in first person. But in chapter two, wisdom is described in third person. The father tells the son, incline your ear to wisdom. The flow of verses one to five is designed to evoke a sense of seriousness. When I'm talking to my son, Caden, and I really want him to, to listen and to pay attention to what I'm saying, when I really want his undivided attention, I'll bend down and I'll sort of get on his level and I'll gently take his chin, turn his face to mine, and I'll say, son, listen. That's usually followed. 90% of that is correction because when you have toddlers, most of what you say is stop, no, don't. But I try and get his undivided attention and I say, son, listen. And that's the same tone and feel that this father has as he speaks to his son. He says, receive my words. And at the end of verse one, it gets more specific. And he says, treasure up my commands. So most often the word command in the Bible is associated with the law of God. And in this verse, the Hebrew word for command is also a synonym for Torah. So the warning here is to heed the words of God. The book of Proverbs also uses a lot of um, language, uh, po poetic language, to communicate its message. So you see that in the ear-heart language used in the first few verses. We hear with the ear, but the father doesn't just stop there he, when he's talking to his son. He also brings our attention to the heart, and he says, something ought to be happening in the heart as you hear. So there's a connection there. Something should be happening in the heart as you hear, as you listen. Make your ear attentive and incline your heart. The Bible uses the heart to refer to the mind. Um, it's, the, the heart is seen as the, the seat of being and it's a reference to our whole inner person, the heart, the mind, the will. The language, that language means that we must be fully given to wisdom in order to benefit from it. Why? Well, because we have a natural inclination towards what? The opposite of wisdom, folly, foolishness. So there's no automatic, there's nothing automatic about wisdom. Again, we don't just fall into being wise. Our natural inclination and propensity is towards foolishness. So we can't expect, again, to sit back <clears throat> and recline and drift into wisdom. That would, to expect that would be like uh, wanting to train for the Olympics and your plan is, let me just not train at all and eat whatever I want to eat, but I'll get there. That doesn't make any sense. Nope, nobody does that. If you, you don't become an Olympic athlete by just eating what you want to eat, uh, not getting sleep, uh, not training your body and not training your body intensely. And it's the same idea with wisdom. <clears throat> it takes a deliberate decision to begin to walk wisely and it takes constant attention to what we think in order to stay on that path. 
So we have to really think about what we're thinking as we think about wisdom. <clears throat> this is why Proverbs uses language like receive, uh, treasure up, incline, apply, cry out for, lift up your voice for, seek and search for wisdom. Right, so there's an intentionality there. <clears throat> In verses three to five, the father introduces this if-then argument. So let's read verses three to five again. I'll, I'll read it for us. It says, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Right, so there's this, this if-then if language, which says, if you do this, the condition, then you can plan on this, the result. Now, of course, this is proverbial truth. It's not um, guaranteed uh, command. It's, it's proverbial truth, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. But this argument that the father emphasizes <clears throat> two things. Well, in this argument, I should say, the father emphasizes two things. One is the importance of choosing wisdom over folly. Again, it doesn't happen automatically. And two, it shows us that there are results when one seeks wisdom. Wisdom is not uh, sort of spitefully elusive, hiding behind a bush hoping not to be seen. You remember in chapter one, she cries aloud. She cries to the mocker, uh, the foolish, and she says, Come to me, hear, be warned, turn, be corrected, right? So she's not hiding, she, she's crying aloud for the foolish to come and turn from their foolishness. She's a public figure, she's depicted at least as a public figure, and those who respond to her calls, she helps. We saw that in chapter one. Um, the poetry of Proverbs, as we'll see, is also very interesting. The language of call out and raise your voice in verse three, I just read, is the same language that wisdom actually uses when she's pleading for the simple to hear her and to turn from their folly. <clears throat> so Proverbs 1, 20 to 21. Wisdom cries aloud in the streets and the market she, in the markets she raises her voice at the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. Uh, louder over and above the noisiness of the street. She cries out at the entrance of the city gates. She speaks. Same language in Proverbs 2 here. If you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding. You see that? It, it's the same language in both of these verses. So there's an illustration here that says in order for you to be wisdom's student, you have to call out for her with the same intensity that she has when she calls out for the simple to hear. In other words, when she cries aloud in the streets for you, you cry aloud back and answer by saying, yes, me, I need wisdom, right? So we're, you're matching the cry of wisdom <clears throat> and you're recognizing yourself as one in need of that. Verse five is simply saying that the result of wisdom is that you know what to do to please God and how to do it. We know what to do to please God and how to do it, the result of wisdom. Fear and knowledge 
are words that refer to information, attitude, and actions. So another way to refer to this is our affections. When someone responds to wisdom's call, there is a total response and life, which includes our worship, our obedience, our service, our love, which God actually enables in those whom fully commit their ways to him. See that in Proverbs chapter 3. Have someone read this for us. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Thank you. <clears throat> so our relationship with ourselves or how we view ourselves um, in light of our relationship with God, our relationship with our neighbors, our things, our work, uh, and the whole world becomes, or our view of the whole world, rather, becomes informed by wisdom. So there's a connection between the hearing and the application of wisdom. Um, and we're reminded of that in James, uh, not just hearers of the word, but doers. Okay, <clears throat> so we've looked at the value of wisdom. Let's walk through this next section, the fruit of wisdom. The fruit of wisdom. So verses 6 to 8, and, and by, by fruit of wisdom, as you see in your handout, it's verses 6 through 10. But verses 6 to 8 support the, conditional, support the condition of verses 1 to 5. If you do this, then the result of that, of this, uh, is seen in this word, for the Lord gives wisdom. If you do this, then the result is this for the Lord gives wisdom. So these verses lay out the motive for seeking knowledge and understanding. Verses one to five, along with verses six to eight, seem to have this circular argument. And this is what I mean. He just said, seek wisdom and you will find it. But then he says, find God and you will gain wisdom. So which one is it? Seek it and you will find it. Find God and you will gain it. The point is this, there's a deep connection between wisdom and God. Wisdom leads us to God and God guards us through wisdom. The end of verse six tells us that wisdom here described as knowledge and understanding comes specifically from Yahweh's mouth. And where do we find the words of Yahweh's mouth? We find them in the scriptures. <clears throat> Verse seven starts to draw out the benefits or fruit of gaining wisdom that brings us to a right relationship with God. We also see this connection between wisdom and ethical qualities. <clears throat> so the wise is one, so the wise is one described as having integrity or uprightness. In other words, they do what is morally right. And some translations actually use the word innocence. God stores up sound wisdom for the innocent. So let's talk about this word innocent or upright so that we know how to think about it when we see it in Proverbs. When you read Romans 3 <clears throat> in the New Testament, obviously, <laughs> Paul addresses every human being that has ever lived, every human being born of natural birth, and he says that none is righteous, no, not one. No one does good, not even one. 
he seems to be saying that no one is innocent. So assuming that God isn't speaking out of both sides of his mouth here, and you should assume that, how do we understand and appreciate the Old Testament concept for innocence that we see here in Proverbs? The Old Testament actually points to Job and calls him innocent. And it's the same Hebrew word, tom, used here in Proverbs 2.7, that word for upright. So of course, Job wasn't without sin. Even Job acknowledges that no person is completely righteous. Job 9.2, truly I know that, that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? And yet, there are people whose lives, for the most part, are marked by ethical rightness and legal obedience. So in the book of Proverbs, those who are closely related to wisdom are called innocent. It doesn't mean that they are sinless. It means that they walk in wisdom, ultimately. It's a synonym for righteous conduct. Okay? Right, that's helpful. So as we continue to think about the fruit of wisdom, verse 8 says that, God guards the path of justice. That means that his wisdom works in us to guard against tendencies towards injustice, unfair treatment of neighbors and fellow citizens. <clears throat> now this is a huge conversation and controversy within Christendom right now and really the whole world. This idea of justice. <clears throat> People are asking, what is justice? What does justice look like? How do we apply uh, the biblical principles for justice? Now, those of us who would disagree with the diagnosis, the approach, and the conclusion of many social justice advocates, sometimes we can cringe at even the sound, even the word justice, right? That there's, within this controversy, we, we can hear the word justice and it's like, Ugh but what do you mean? <laughs> and, and I do that, just to put, put my cards on the table. Verse nine, though, is saying that through wisdom and the fear of the Lord, we will understand righteousness and justice and equity. So these words don't become taboo because they are often mislabeled and sometimes abused. A biblical view of justice and equity comes through <clears throat> the fear of the Lord which is associated with wisdom, knowledge, and understanding, which is connected to the words that come from the mouth of God. That's just what you see in Proverbs. <clears throat> God himself has established what is justice and equity. We hear God speak through his word, which informs our categories of justice and equity. God has created those categories we recognize them and practice what he has laid out in his word. We don't create our own categories for justice and equity. That would be to lean on your own understanding. So we want to stay away from that. But the Bible addresses this and we ought to <clears throat> view it as the Bible views it. <clears throat> Verse nine really ends up summarizing the fact that the son should now have a moral sensitivity that comes from receiving and putting into practice the Father's instructions that lead to wisdom and the knowledge of God. <clears throat> the fruit of wisdom is ethical enlightenment, which 
instructed Israel on how to live justly in the land that God had given them and instructs us on how to live justly in a fallen world. And so wisdom is made practical for, at the beginning of verse 10, gives the reason for this new moral sensitivity. So the son is now sensitive to morality or his conscience has been informed because wisdom and knowledge have become a part of his character, right? So there's a practical implications from him hearing and him doing. And you might have noticed this pattern so far. Uh, Verses one to four lay out the condition, if, if you do this, then verses five to 10 answer with a, a pattern. So if you do this, verse five, then you will understand, beginning of verse six, for the Lord gives wisdom, beginning of verse nine, then you will understand, beginning of verse 10, for wisdom comes into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. So there's this circular pattern of wisdom leading to God and wisdom coming from God. One last comment here before we go to the next section. You remember the father calling his son not only to hear the words, but also to apply what he's commanding. You see that fear and knowledge are amplified and made practical by the practice of righteousness, justice, and equity. The receiving of one causes the practice of the other. Okay, in other words, when we hear wisdom, it has practical implications. We should be doing something. Our affections should change because we're informed by wisdom. <clears throat> okay, uh, any, any questions? Quick, quick questions before we go to the next section. I want to make sure that y'all are tracking with me. George? Wisdom ties on to us, but we should be crying back to you. The Bible uses darkness as a picture of that. We want to stay in the darkness. We, we abhor, we reject the light, and it's true. We find all type of other things to, to fill ourselves with, to give our affections to, everything except wisdom in the word of God. Yeah, that's a good point. Peter? Yeah. Greater or better? Yeah. Yeah. So we actually, we're going to get there. <clears throat> um, it is pointing to something ultimately. Wisdom has an ultimate end, um, which, if I don't get a chance to cover at the, the end, I'll just go back and answer the question. But I do have that in my notes here. If, if I'm on you're just saying that it, it's pointing to something greater than just, um, yeah, absolutely. Any other thoughts before we jump to the next section? Okay, so the fruit of wisdom, that that was the fruit of wisdom. It has uh, spiritual and practical implications. Now let's look at the next section and think through how it protects those who love it. The protection of wisdom, uh, verses 11 to 19. 
So the father continues in verse 11 with a description of how the way of wisdom protects and guards the one who is instructed by it. So here, discretion means to think through the consequences of an action and choosing the way of integrity. Some have described the word uh, discretion as your private unrevealed thoughts that function as guardrails on the path that you walk. So if discretion is watching over the son and understanding is guarding him, the question is guarding him from what? Verse 12 tells us plainly, the son is being guarded from the way of evil and men of perverted speech. The father already warned the son in chapter one that evil people will produce calamity in his life. Here, wisdom promises to remove the son from evil company, wicked associates and bad people. They're not only people who seek or who speak and do perverse things, but they are people who have completely forsaken the path of uprightness. They walk in the way of darkness and they love it so much that it brings them joy. So they rejoice in doing evil and delight in perverseness. Um, I don't know if you've ever known someone who just loves doing evil so much they seem to get a kick out of it. Maybe that was you, it was me <laughs> before I was saved. But it's, it's this idea that this person, their, their lifeblood is, is unrighteousness, is wickedness, is perverseness. They're characterized by this wickedness. They rejoice in doing evil. It's sort of like a high for them. <clears throat> and you see this word perversity that describes this person a few other places in Proverbs. Uh, let me have someone read uh, these verses for us. You can just read all three. Thank you. So we might only think <clears throat> of a perverse person as people we see on like Netflix documentaries, serial killers and whatnot. And that's just becoming popular, more and more documentaries about serial killers. Yes, I've watched a couple of them. <laughs> I'm curious. But that's not the only way that the Bible describes perverseness. When we think perverse, we connect it to the most wicked expressions of sin. But the Bible even looks at the gossiper and calls them perverse. The person who spreads strife, he's constantly stirring up contention. He's a perverse person. They may not carry a knife, but their tongue does more damage than any knife could. And the Bible looks at that person and says, that's actually a perverse person. <clears throat> their speech is crafted cutting and devious. The wisdom the father imparts to his son says, stay far from them. Not just the person who's out murdering um, or the person who's going into the uh, you know, strip clubs at night, but stay away from the person who is contentious and has devious speech. They are perverse. 
So the Bible has a very broad category for perverse. So the people that the father is warning his son to stay away from are those who have left the path of righteousness. They are now on the evil path. Their, way, their ways are twisted and devious. <clears throat> some, transla- some translation, see verse 16, jump down to that, as a continuation of verse 15. But the ESV starts verse 16 with the word, so. It's a connected thought, but the father shifts his attention here because he wants to deal with another threat to the son. Yes, the perverse person, but also the forbidden woman. And the forbidden or the strange woman, the adulterous woman, becomes the main topic of chapters 5, 6, and 7. In chapter 5, the father gives us a warning against the forbidden woman by giving his son very practical advice that may surprise you. He essentially says, guard your heart and your way from the adulterous woman. How? by maintaining a healthy sexual relationship with your wife. Very practical advice. So let's read Proverbs 5, 15 to 20. I'll read it for us. Proverbs 5, 15 to 20. It says, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Strangers, strange woman, there's a connection there. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely doe, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Proverbs uses this strong imagery, cisterns and water, to paint a picture and to communicate a message. Proverbs often uses imagery and illustration to communicate these messages. This rivalry of affections between the strange woman and the virtuous wife is also a picture of the rivalry between woman wisdom and woman folly. The virtuous wife represents wisdom and the adulterous woman represents what? Folly. So again, in verse 16, the father refers to this type of woman as adulterous or strange. So as I was reading through this, the question I asked is what makes the strange woman strange? This seems like an interesting word to use to describe this woman. The Hebrew word for strange can be understood in a few different ways. And we might just think it's referring to a non-Israelite woman. But the word strange used in parallel with adulteress is likely not to be simply saying that this is a non-Israelite woman. The strangeness of this woman is actually seen in her willingness to violate the moral, legal, and customary restraints. The point is the strangeness of her character. That's what's being brought out here. That's why she can also be described as an immoral woman or an adulterous woman. And the father is warning the son and saying wisdom will keep you away from even her. But, <clears throat> but for those who would uh, 
sorry. But of those, or both of those, I should say, sorry, immoral woman and adulteress or um, seductress would be good translations to point to the foreignness of the woman. She is a spiritual and social outsider because she has intentionally chosen to violate the covenant morals of her people as well as the covenant of her God. She violates the law as she forsakes the companion of her youth. And who is the companion? It's not just a childhood friend, it's her husband. She forsakes the companion of her youth. Uh, she's, uh, she's chosen not to sustain her marriage vows and by committing adultery, she is breaking her covenant with God. The fact that she is described as having been in a covenant with God shows that this moral is not a non-Israelite, but she's actually an Israelite temptress. The second half, or the second half of verse 17 says that she forgets the covenant of her God. So what do you think the Bible is saying here? Does this person, does she simply forget that God exists? Uh, does, does she just not remember that she's made a covenant with her spouse and with God? I think it's, it's deeper than that. Hosea 2.13 uses the same word, the Hebrew word for forgot. And in talking about Israel, look at what it says. I will punish her for the days of the Baals when she used to offer sacrifices to them and adorn herself with her earrings and jewelry and follow her lovers so that she forgot me, declares the Lord. Israel forgetting is associated with her offering sacrifices to false gods and grooming or adorning herself, making herself pretty to be found attractive to other lovers. So deliberate acts of rejecting God are associated with forgetting God. Anytime we sin, at that moment, we forget God. We act as if God doesn't exist. We forget that we live Coram Deo before the face of God. And that's exactly what the strange woman does. And ultimately, the ugliness of her actions stand in contrast to the attractiveness of her seductive techniques. I, I do this naturally when I say seductive. I don't know why, so <laughs> forgive me. I'm very expressive. She, she flatters and she says smooth words and they sound good, but her paths have departed from the way of wisdom and righteousness. Just a quick question. Yeah. I know they're using a female in this, but could it be in a, a male as well? Absolutely. 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 And the, 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 the idea that, and this is in my notes, but I wonder if I should just answer it because we only have five minutes left. <laughs> um, yes, so the, the idea of the adulterous woman is it's part of the poetry of, of Proverbs because Proverbs pits uh, woman wisdom against woman folly and the virtuous woman or wife against the adulterous woman. So the, the point is not that only women can be seductress, uh, seductresses, is that the right word? Uh, seducers. Um, but it's a part of the poetry and the language to sort of paint a picture here, which ultimately points to um, Israel and their rejection of God. Um, but yes, a, a man can be a seductress, sir, person. Even though the woman is being portrayed, the tendency is more 
Absolutely. Just like we have <clears throat> sins that are associated with uh, males, for instance, say pornography, <clears throat> it's also known that women, to a lesser degree, right. are still given to pornography as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Proverbs, that, that's, that's true, and that, that's right. Um, and Proverbs also, just considering the context here, it was more young women in this uh, culture were more guarded and protected and kept in by their families um, more than young, young men. So it was, it was sort of a different cultural context. So it was more likely that the young man would uh, stray into the arms of the adulterous woman than the young girl to stray into the arms of, a, of an adulterous man. Although that's absolutely true. Uh, anybody, man or female, can be wicked and a seducer um, and express that evil in that way. But the, the context is sort of trying to, to paint a picture here. And it's also part of the, the poetry. Right. Absolutely. So there's a there's it's literal. <laughs> Don't go into the, the, the foreign woman, which we saw in Proverbs five, but it's also figurative. OK, I'm going to jump down to the last section because I sort of covered the last paragraph by that, that uh, question. So let me try and finish this out here. <clears throat> so the last section, the two paths, uprightness versus the wicked path versus 20 to 22. So these last few verses are the concluding statement. Everything that verses one through 19 have said have, have been building up and come to this conclusion of the Father's instruction. Verses uh, 11 to 19 emphasize the protection of wisdom and keeping a person away from evil influences. The path of those who depart from God's way. But verse 20 actually goes back to that idea that wisdom keeps people on the right path. And we find that the son won't travel on that path alone. He's not sort of given over to this path. It says that um, it's the path of the righteous. All those who are righteous walk this path. So this isn't Frodo and the Lord of the Rings sort of bearing the burden alone. Um, there are others on this path with him. The word so at the beginning of verse 20 makes a grammatical and logical connection to the prior verses. Discretion guards you, verse 11, by rescuing you from men of perverse speech, verse 12, and the adulterous woman, verse 16, to the end that or so that we may live or walk the way that good and righteous people should walk. So the two negative illustrations show how positive wisdom's purpose is. And the last two verses show the ultimate consequences of the two paths, it's life or death. Those are the only two options. There's really no middle ground when it comes to wisdom and folly. Now there's this threat of the loss of land here in verse, 20, verse 22. And these verses sound a lot like the covenant blessings and curses associated with Israel's faithfulness or disobedience. The stipulations for them to stay in the land and receive God's blessing was obedience. Disobedience invited exile in God's judgment. 
And though uh, the land in verse 21 may refer to the land of promise, and though the words inhabit and remain may refer to Israel's continued possession of it, uh, it's more likely that the physical existence of, or at least the physical welfare, is the point rather than national uh, security. Either way, sin and folly will cause a loss of blessing and ultimately death. The exile of Israel from the land was a reality for the people of Israel, but it's also a type that points to the ultimate exile of one from the presence of God's good pleasure and the blessings found in Christ. So in closing, what does this mean for someone who wants to heed the warning of the father to his son, the warning to become wise? What does it mean for them? Well, they should read the book of Proverbs and the rest of scripture. The wisdom of God confronts pride and leads to humility. First Peter 5, 5 says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. The pursuit of proverbial wisdom should lead us away from the pride that separates us from God. Ultimately, to find wisdom and remain in the land is to find Christ and abide in him. Under the new covenant, in Christ, all of the covenant blessings are secured, and by the Holy Spirit, they are applied and become ours. This is the end of wisdom, life, not death. And Christ himself is the way, the righteous path, and truth and life. So I'll close with uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 1.30, which says, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who become to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The end of wisdom is the person of Christ. Okay. With that, let me pray and we'll close out. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for uh, the book of Proverbs. And as we've gone through chapter two here, we pray that uh, we would, at least in, in, in a small way, better understand what's happening here. Um, I pray that you would um, sharpen our vision of you, that you would make us to be wise people, people that... Um, walk the path of wisdom, people that abide in Christ, um, and pray that you would continue to sanctify us and, and, and edify us by your word, that we would be more conformed to the image of your son. Uh, bless us now, Lord, as we go into the sanctuary to hear the word preached, to take the Lord's Supper together, to fellowship together, to pray together. Um, may we tend to these means of grace well, and may they serve us well as we tend to them. For your glory and our good, we pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>